Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is asking premiers and mayors to do the right thing as COVID-19 caseloads continue to rise across the country. Is there more we can do? We'll talk about that. This weekend we'll see another anti-mask freedom rally, this time in St. Thomas, Ontario. What is the official response from city police? We'll delve into that. And how will the delay in the transition to power impact President-elect Joe Biden's ability to prepare for office? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. COVID dominates so many things that are happening right now. Of course, politics, our daily lives, and just about everything. And especially problematic because, well, we are now into the second wave officially, as we've known. And the numbers are not looking good. Um, I, you know, I, a lot of us thought we probably had a handle on this, and we're you know, going to try to mitigate the, image, the, the damage rather that a second wave could do. But uh, the numbers continue to rise nationally. And the Prime Minister, in his daily briefing yesterday, says we got to get a handle on this. We're seeing record spikes this morning across the country. So I urge the premiers and the mayors to please do the right thing. Act now to protect public health. If you think something is missing in the support we're offering your citizens, tell us. We will work with you as we have since day one. The federal government promised to have Canadians' backs. And we will. Whatever it takes for as long as it takes. So why are the numbers continuing to go up? I mean, where where's the weakness here in this defense that we're mounting against the second wave? Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Alison Thompson, Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences and a Professor of Public Health Services and a Professor of Public Health Sciences at uh, the University of Toronto. Professor, once again, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the program again. Thanks for having me. We're going the wrong way here, Allison. The numbers are going up and up and up. You know, the governments are telling us that they're, they're looking at this and, you know, we, we want to take a, 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 a standard approach to this, but at the same time, a measured approach because they don't want to shut down the economy again. Uh, but the numbers still are, are problematic here. What are we doing wrong? Well, I think that this shift that we saw from uh, the stages to this, uh, sort of red light, green light system that got implemented has indicated that Ford is really prioritizing the economy over pandemic control. And obviously, that sounds good on paper to him, but they're they're so interlinked that I think he's going to end up losing both fights. Well, and he's been accused of that, you know, by many other people. I made a commentary about that just a couple of days ago on the program. Uh, are we doing this the best possible way or the cheapest possible way? So, that, you know, th- this is not trying to score political points. This is trying to save lives. That should be the priority. Absolutely. Like, there's no, there's no question that ethically we need to be prioritizing mortality and morbidity over dollars. And obviously, that's not quite the right framing of the issue because they're so interlinked. But I think, you know, the the real trade-off is between short-term gain and long-term pain. And I think we're going for short-term gain here, which is going to end up costing us more in the long run. There are examples, though, in other parts of the world where they have tackled this. And, and well, New Zealand comes to mind. Hong Kong certainly comes to mind. Uh, the stuff that they did there might be considered to be drastic by some of the folks that are pushing back here. But is it absolutely that we, we have to go to that extreme if we're going to do this? The old phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures. Well, I don't think that that was inevitable. I think that what we're seeing now is that we have passed the threshold of exponential growth in the community, um, whereas if we had acted earlier, we could have maintained, you know, some some semblance of normalcy um, with limited uh, restrictions on certain businesses, perhaps. But we're getting to the point where we are headed into uh, lockdown territory because there's going to be no alternative. Um, whereas if we had had a more measured response, I think, you know, if we'd, we'd taken our foot off the gas a little bit earlier, we wouldn't have needed to implement these sort of more drastic shutdowns that we're seeing in Toronto and Peel regions. Uh, did we overreact when we started to see the numbers decline? Um, you know, I think that's a, that's the hindsight of twenty twenty is is yeah. always there. But you know, I think people really needed a break after that long, long time in in lockdown. So, I think what we saw was just a a sort of shift in in the priorities of the Ontario government um, towards you know favoring business over over public health. 
and, and I understand that. I think we all felt that and we all heard that from, from our fellow citizens when things went on. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when I'm looking at these numbers now and looking at what happened back in March and April, I'm wondering if we learned anything from that first experience. Well, this is a great question about pandemics. We, we learn these lessons over and over again, and, and it's really amazing for those of us who have worked in this area for a long time that, you know, we never seem to learn the lessons uh, from previous pandemics, never mind within the same pandemic. So, you know, there's so many so many things to be taken into consideration, and, you know, I I think that Ford was doing a good job early on. I, I don't know what, what shifted in his thinking, but, you know, I think his base... Uh, which were, you know, economically minded people probably did not like what they did early on. And so he's doing a course correction uh, to hold on to that sort of electoral segment of the Ontario population. But I think I think we're going to learn the lesson again the hard way if we don't, um, you know, if we don't take this more seriously than we have been. The uh, finger pointing has already started, of course, and and there, as you, I've heard the same voices that you have, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the, the chambers of commerce and others are saying, "Look, we can't do this again. We can't have a shutdown again. Uh, businesses are still suffering from the first wave," and and these are all legitimate concerns. I get that, uh, but I know that businesses feel as if they've been targeted. Um, restaurants, bars, uh, gymnasiums, especially, and they're saying that uh, that you know it's because of you and the guys that aren't following the rules there. And I know there have been some examples where that has ca- happened, but I think the numbers actually indicate that uh, that that's not r- the where the real problem is. It just seems to be we, the public, private gatherings. We're the ones that seem to say we're not going to do much of this anymore. Yeah, I think I think that was true earlier on. I think there is some interesting data now to show that once. Um, once the indoor dining stopped, that it did make a big difference to to the numbers. But I guess, you know, the point is that at this point that we have widespread community transmission. And so uh, it's all fronts that we need to be limiting contact on, not just businesses. It's, you know, even just staying, staying within our own households. Everybody has a role to play here. Um, so, you know, yes, there is there are going to be disproportionate burdens put on certain groups of people and certain kinds of businesses. But I think that's where the government has to come in and say, you know, we will try to compensate you for doing the right thing here. And we're not really seeing that. And, you know, I think we've seen Justin Trudeau coming forward uh, saying, you know, if you need that help, we're, we're here to help provide that. But, you know, the provinces don't seem to be asking for that help right now. Well, there's one area of concern that you and I talked about seven months ago that's still an area of concern, and that, of course, is, uh, is long-term care facilities. And we've seen the numbers spike there, notwithstanding the fact that the Premier and, and others in his government had promised uh, in the summertime that they were going to do something about it. And I know they've done a task force, and you know they, they've said they're going on a hiring spree to try to hire people, but that's not going to get done until 2023 or 2024, which is cold comfort, I guess, to the residents in those facilities right now. Uh, you're right. There has to be, I, I think, a, a discernible change in, in the commitment that governments are making to this. Absolutely. And, and the situation in long-term care is just tragic. It really is. I mean, these these people are suffering unbelievably by being cut off from family and friends, not having the interaction even with other residents that they usually can have when we get into a situation where they are they are also put under more stringent restrictions. And so, you know, I think they are the canary in the coal mine here. And and the stories that are coming out from long-term care facilities um, are just heartbreaking. And, and I think that we, we really need to get that right this time. There is absolutely no excuse. We learned the lesson last time, and, and we cannot do that again to, to these poor people. They, you know, there were some stories coming out saying that they would rather die than go through another you know, three or four month period like mm-hmm. the one they did in the spring. So this is just imperative that we get that right this time. Well, some of the stories we heard from the independent inquiry were just heartbreaking about, uh, you know, residents' feelings if they were caged animals and, and treated not as well as animals get treated in zoos and things of that nature. And that's uh, that may be a perception, but it's their reality. And, and you know, you're right. That, that needs to be addressed. 
but again, it comes down it comes down to government and it comes down to the commitment. I, now I know economists are going to shudder when I talk like this, but there has to be an attitude here to say, okay, whatever it takes to get this virus under control, we're going to do it, and we'll worry about the cost later. But I'm starting to hear dissenting voices in politics, uh, federally and provincially now, Allison, that are saying, yeah, but you know, we got to keep an eye on the bottom line. And you know, it, it's, it, to use your phrase from earlier in the conversation here, if you take your foot off the gas pedal, uh, this is what you see as a result. Uh, you know, we, we, if you know, we we seem to have, have lost that commitment to say we're going to do everything and anything to get this thing going. Yeah, and I think I think that the the people who are saying that are really not looking ahead into the long term because we know from other pandemics that if you don't get it under control, the long term economic picture is very bleak. And so, yes, there it, it's really a matter of short term pain for long term gain. If we lose, you know, a certain percentage of the workforce, we've already seen a devastating impact on women in the workforce from this pandemic. You know that that takes much longer to recover from than, you know, a, a short-term lockdown does. So we need people who have a longer view of the, the health of the economy to be making making more louder kind of arguments around this. And, you know, the problem is we've got these four-year terms for governments. They're not looking long-term. No, politicians tend to look in four-year cycles because they, you know, they're looking to their next re-election, not to what's going to yeah. be better 10, 15 years from now. That old adage that you know, plant a seed. You know, you may not be there to watch the tree grow, but it's going to be there. Uh, exactly. That, that's yeah. That mindset is not prevalent in Ottawa or at Queens Park, nor any other capital for that matter. Sadly, do mm-hmm. we? Are we getting a false sense of security, though, with the story earlier this week about a, a, the the quicker development of a, of a vaccine than we had thought it was going to happen? Well, I think I think the problem with uh, with that is we just don't know what the science is yet. That was sort of science by press release. We know what they said, but nobody's actually seen these data. We don't know who it, the vaccine is ninety percent effective for. We don't know a lot of other things about this vaccine. We don't know what the safety profile is. So there, it's very encouraging, and certainly if it's true. Um, that is that is great news, but there are so many other issues um, that we just don't know yet, and we can't even design a, a strategy for vaccinating Canadians until we have that data. So, um, so it's great news, but I think we're still a, a, quite a long way off from being able to celebrate. I saw an interview the other day on one of the channels I was watching. It was the president of Pfizer, and it was the day the announcement was made. And uh, they asked the question at 90% effectiveness, and I think you and I had this conversation too. And you know, and, and that's that's very encouraging news. But the, the 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 interviewer said, "Well, what symptoms is it 90% effective? Is it is it the sniffles and the high temperature that you might get, or a sore throat, or is it the more serious respiratory things and and circulatory problems that we've seen in some patients?" And his answer was, "I don't know." He says, "We don't yeah. know yet." So it tells us we we got a long way to go yet. Yeah, and and then there are the issues around that particular vaccine, which is um, it has to be kept at minus seventy degrees, and that is not something that uh, a small pharmacy or or even a doctor's office can manage. And so you need these very specialized uh, freezers to keep it in. Uh, you can only open the freezer a couple of times a day for a minute at a time. So. We're looking at a very particular kind of rollout for a vaccine there, which means that people in rural communities uh, and in developing countries, it's not going to be much use for them unless we get a huge investment in cold chain storage infrastructure. Well, and we've seen that with the uh, the flu vaccine, and, and thank God we've got the, the flu vaccine. But uh, as as our experts have told us, and you know, if you are have a pre-existing condition and if you're more vulnerable, you're probably still going to get the flu, even if you take a flu shot. But it's not going to be as severe. Uh, and they don't know if that's what's going to happen with COVID yet. That those people may still be vulnerable to, as a result of this. So I, I think they're being very optimistic when they say by summertime we'll start to to get this thing through. Uh, and in the meantime. You know, what are we doing about it here? What are we doing short term? Are we social distancing? Uh, I've been a strong advocate for, and I've mentioned it again this week, uh, about mandatory masking. And I know, you know, President-elect Biden's talking about doing that. And there's a big pushback. Uh, you brought a post about the protest they hit in Aylmer, Ontario, this past weekend. Apparently, there's going to be another one in St. Thomas in the same neck of the woods in southwestern Ontario uh, planned for this weekend. And we've seen these happen in other areas, too. Uh, but 
I get the sense that they don't get the message that public health is the number one priority here. And this, you know, if the experts are saying this is what needs to be done, it's what needs to be done. And it's such an easy thing to do. It, it, I mean, I think it makes us ask, like, what, what is really going on here? Because it's not really about the mask. It's about an, uh, what they view as an unfair infringement on their liberty. And, and I think that the more we can do to emphasize, you know, our, our common purpose here and getting away from that, you know, thinking about our individual liberty and thinking about what the collective good it here is, is that's really where we need to be focusing in the conversation. And so anything we can to support people to make it easier for them to wear masks and to acknowledge that, yes, this is an infringement on your liberty, if you want to frame it that way, but it's also protecting people in your community. And, and why wouldn't you want to do that? Well, I've had a couple of constitutional experts on about this over the last little while, and the consensus opinion from what they've said and what I've read uh, is that your individual rights stop as soon as it starts to inhibit somebody else's uh, right to freedom and to public health. Uh, and if you're not wearing a mask, you're a spreader. And, and by definition, you, you're a, a threat to somebody who's going to be in a vulnerable position. Uh, we have a different set of rules and a different uh, mindset in, in Canada than they do in the States. I know, you know, they're very proud of the fact that individual liberties trump just about everything else down there. But in Canada, the greater good trumps personal and, and individual rights. Uh, and, and that's been constitutionally proven time and time again. Nobody's tried it in court yet with the mask thing. But uh, I think they're in for a rude awakening if anybody tr tries to challenge us through the courts. Yeah, and I think the more we can get away from thinking about this in terms of rights or liberty, the better off we are. You know, let's talk about what human needs are not being met here. You know, um, and I think that that trying to steer the conversation away from rights-based thinking is probably more helpful because. I think that's you do end up with a with a more sort of libertarian approach to life if you focus on those things rather than what we tend to do in Canada is ask you know what's good for the community and and I think you're right about that I mean I'm not sure what the courts would do but I think the the public opinion court of public opinion is is pretty clearly on the side of masking. Well, it is, and and again, I guess we'll finish off the conversation kind of the way we started. Is the political will there to to do that sort of thing? And I I don't know the answer to that. I haven't seen a whole lot of evidence of it so far. Uh, we are just about out of time on this segment, anyway. Always a pleasure, Allison, to get you on the program and to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Professor Allison Thompson from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another demonstration being planned for this weekend. You may remember last week we talked about the one in Aylmer, Ontario, where a number of anti-maskers uh, assembled, many of them from out of town, we were told. This weekend sees another what they call Freedom Rally uh, scheduled for St. Thomas, Ontario. Uh, George Roche is the executive director of The Line Canada, which apparently is the organization that is behind this. And he says they don't believe COVID is a good enough reason to give up civil liberties. Freedom, freedom. The message is the same across the country. Uh, we don't believe that COVID is a good enough reason to give up uh, all of our, uh, our civil uh, liberty. What we do find is the people who don't have the knowledge we're bringing to the town are attacking the people. Not the problem, the people. We don't have a case with 2,500 to 12,000 people showing up at Dundas Square, and we haven't received a ticket. So somebody has to explain to us why we haven't received any cases after 28 weeks with people elbow to elbow in Dundas Square, Toronto. We've proven that there is no COVID to the extent that we have been led to believe there is. Well, uh, that's a point of contention, to be sure. And uh, what's going to happen in St. Thomas, Ontario? I'm going to bring Sawyer Bogdan into the conversation, reporter with 980 CFPL in London, of course. Uh, Sawyer, thanks for jumping in with us today. Really appreciate the time. No problem. Thanks for having me. What are you anticipating this weekend? We're told about 200 folks are going to show up again. Yeah, in um, St. Thomas uh, is preparing, much like Elmer did last weekend, um, for an influx of people. Uh, police have said it's only going to be around... 200 people, um, but I think that's a hard number to estimate, especially considering how many people came from out of town in Elmer last weekend. Mm -hmm. I guess the obvious question is the same one I asked about a week and a half ago. You know, back then, the question was, why Elmer? Now I'm asking, why St. Thomas? Any idea? Um, honestly, I, d I don't really know. I mean, I think in any community you go into, there's probably um, a couple of people, maybe more than a couple 
who are opposed to the restrictions that are in place. Um, I think you'd have to ask Align Canada why they're um, setting up these um, demonstrations in each of these um, towns. I mean, it's really it's really hard to say because they are bringing people in from outside of these towns to participate. So it's not necessarily everybody living in this town are the ones that you're seeing on the streets um, protesting. Do you have any idea exactly how this is going to manifest itself, where it's going to go? I know they wanted to go to the Castle Station, the former train station uh, in St. Thomas, and I guess the owners of the property have said, no way, you can't be there. So uh, is, it, is it the town hall where, down the main, where are they going to go? Any idea? Is there, there, I, I'm not suggesting there's a parade route, but they must have some idea what they're going to do. Yeah, so they, they uh, St. Thomas police have said that the new meeting um, area is Memorial Arena. That's okay. what the line Canada has decided on. And then they'll be traveling northbound along Whistle Stop Trail to Moore Street. Um, that's the new route, route that they've, uh, they've planned for. Uh, we did reach out, by the way, to, uh, to St. Thomas Mayor Joe Preston and uh, Chief of Police uh, Chris Harridge. Uh, I have not gotten back to us yet, but uh, we may yet uh, hook up with them before this thing happens over the weekend. Uh, the implications to this, I mean, is there a concern, uh, even in London, sorry, that this is happening around London and then maybe London's going to be next? I think there's definitely a concern from people. Even people in these towns um, are worried, like businesses in St. Thomas ha- um, along the route have already started talking about closing down for the day because they just don't want all of a sudden an influx of people coming into their business without not wearing masks. And, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen with people coming from all these different communities, um, how they're going to react to you saying, we don't want you in our business if you're not going to obey public um, health guidelines. And there's definitely a worry, obviously, as it starts in Elmer, which is only... Um, just over 7,000 people, of course, the next, and then they go to St. Thomas, and it seems like they just sort of seem to be gradually increasing in the population size that they visit. Yeah, and working towards, and I, I, I'm not just saying it's small towns, because I know that they've been, at, uh, as uh, that Mr. Larch said, uh, you know, they've been in downtown Toronto or in Dundas Square uh, in the past, and, and apparently, I guess, nobody ever got sick, or that's his uh, assertion anyway. I saw one of the signs in Elma the other day that said, where are all the sick people? Maybe they should go to some of the long-term care facilities down there uh, and some of the hospitals, and uh, they, they might get that question answered for them. But they're, they're single-minded about this, and, you know, it's well, you don't want to see confrontation, but... You know, last week, as you know, in Elmer, there was a, a pro-mask uh, demonstration going on at the same time. The police were able to keep everybody away from each other, and, and although I'm sure there was some yelling going back and forth, that's as bad as it gets. Is there, is there a concern about what might happen in St. Thomas? Is there going to be that other side that may actually decide to rally at the same time? We haven't heard anything about an organized rally, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, when I was in Elmer last weekend, there was... The initial rally that um, in support of public health measures that happened, they made sure themselves to end it way before the anti-mask rally because they didn't want to have any clashes. However, there were still people um, when the main protest was going down the street. Elmer residents were like, we don't want this in our town. So we're going to stand on our own properties and we're going to hold up signs and we're going to yell and we're going to shout because we we don't want you here so i wouldn't be surprised if that happens in st thomas as well because i think there is a sentiment that like you're not you're not helping anybody you're forcing businesses to close down at a time that they're already really hurting because of the coronavirus and they're just trying to keep going and then you take a saturday away from them which is usually their busiest days i think there definitely Mm -hmm. will be disgruntled people whether they do an organized demonstration or not well, and uh, I know that, uh, that uh, Chief Harridge says that, you know, they're going to be out there. Uh, police will be out there around the clock getting ready for this whole thing, and we'll just see how it manifests itself. But it is concerning. I mean, you know, small businesses, uh, you're right, they count on weekend business especially, and they're still recovering from the first wave of the pandemic. And actually, you know, putting something on like this is going to, it's going to be a real burden for an awful lot of them, especially, you know, depending on how long it lasts and just uh, how intense it does get in a situation like that. Anecdotally, I want to ask you, since you were in Elmer, Sawyer, covering last week, uh, and, and obviously there was the demonstrations themselves, but, you know, there were people on the outskirts that were looking at this as well. Uh, did you get the sense that most of the people there are adhering to this and they are wearing masks when they're supposed to? Yeah, I think the general, if you, Elmer on a regular day, I think really cares about keeping people safe and obeying public health guidelines. Like I think the majority, I would say, 
in the town from just speaking to them. Um, they care. Even those who are, even those who were on the pro mask side said, we know some of our neighbors are participating in this demonstration. We don't think they're bad people. We just think they're on the wrong side of the issue. I think everybody's respectful. Elmer itself helped in the very beginning of the pandemic organize PPE. They got um, N95 masks from auto body shops, painters, um, factories that weren't using them at the time, and they collected those to give to hospitals. So I think at the core of it, it's a community that cares. And because a bunch of, there's some people in the community who are against it, but because a large number of people came from outside of Elmer, I think that's where it gives people the misconception that everybody in the town um, is against this. And I think that's really not the case. I think they, at the core of it, in all of these communities that these people are traveling to, I do think that they they care and they want to protect themselves um, and everybody around them. Yeah, and it'd be interesting to see just what happens in those towns too, vis-a-vis the, the spread of the virus. Did you get a chance to talk to some of the protesters last week? I talked to a couple of them. I got shouted at by a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did I did speak to a couple of them who did approach me and say we'd really like to um, respectfully and calmly explain our points, explain our points to me, um, which they were they were definitely nice about it. I think the issue is is that their points are still that like we don't believe in what at least the people who talked to me were we don't believe in what the doctors are telling us. We don't believe in what the scientists are telling us. And they were able to pull a couple of fringe medical professionals. I don't even know who they are, but they're like, these are the people that are telling the truth. The majority of people with the United Nations, with Canada, are the ones that are lying to us. So it's really hard to just reason, I would say, with these. It's really hard to reason in general with them when they're just like, no matter how many legitimate facts or proof that you put in front of us it, it doesn't matter so yeah this is the thing i find interesting because you know, i heard some of the clips that the, that you guys ran uh after the yelmer thing and, and the concern here is that is it that they don't believe the science or they just feel that okay yeah we understand the science but we just think our civil rights are being impinged upon uh and maybe there's maybe there is two sets of of, of thinking going on here but uh they seem pretty adamant about this and like i say they just they don't seem to accept the fact that, that this is a, a virus that's spreading and that it's causing the damage in communities that it that it has been causing. And I mean, the numbers are out there. You report them every day. I report them every day. Uh, I, I guess they just don't believe it. I think it's a mix. Like, I, I do think there are people who are like, COVID's happening. I'm not at risk of it. So, like, why should I care? I do think there's that opinion there. I don't think it's people completely denying the science. However, there were a lot of people there. Um, who are just adamantly opposed to what you're telling me. It doesn't matter how many legitimate facts you throw in my face. I'm not dying. I don't have a friend who's dying. I think you're making it up. I do think it's a mix of people. I don't think they're all, like, completely denying the science that's happening. But when you throw somebody like Pastor Henry Hildebrandt, who's the leader of the Church of God out there, and he seems to have taken become the spokesperson for this movement in the area and he says turn off your tvs and covid doesn't exist folks and that's what he's deciding to preach to people it's just like you know it, it's like you're beating your head against the wall trying to reason with people who are just like doesn't exist it's not here so i think that for me i feel like that was the overwhelming majority of people just saying like you're making it up on some level or another whatever they're individually thinking on it it's hard to say, but I think on some level or another, the majority are saying you're making it up, and the others are like, this is infringing upon my rights, and my rights matter more than keeping people safe. And this is not unique to southwestern Ontario. I mean, we've seen this happen, well, you know, covering the presidential election last week, and you saw some of the reporters that were on site in some of these rallies, the, the Trump rallies and everything, and uh, it, it, I, I felt sorry for the, the people like that that were actually on the front lines, such as you were last week. Uh, because you're the subject of some of the abuse too, because you know you're you're part of that mainstream media that they love to to label and say you know you're the one spreading misinformation. Uh, boy, I, I, you know they they find a social media website that it you know substantiates and, and validates what they want to feel, and they just don't want to see anything else. Yeah, exactly. I think there were definitely not just myself. I think all the media. There were a number of us there, and I think everybody in in some way had some insults lobbied at them, some profanities, the regular fake news. And I think it just happens. Like you said, if you look hard enough on the internet, you're going to find something that substantiates your claim. The question is how legitimate is it? 
Well, yeah, and and the numbers uh, that you've been reporting and we've been reporting, of course, uh, are, are there. And uh, you know, we've had Dr. Mackey, Dr. Chris Mackey, the medical officer of health for the the area, on a number of times, uh, and the Hamilton medical officer of health and others that uh, that are saying, look, this is real. Uh, you know, and you you almost are tempted, I guess, to take these people and say, look, let me show you some of the people that are sick. Uh, let me talk to you about some of the super spreaders that have gone on. Uh, and we saw that happen, and, and, you know, we covered the story about Spinco and Hamilton a couple of weeks ago, you know, how that just ballooned from one or two people all the way up to 65, I think it was, by the time they finally said, look, we've got to shut this whole thing down. Uh, but but there's, they're just non-believers, I guess. That's what it comes down to. Don't, you know, don't confuse me with facts. Yeah, exactly. I think that, I mean, there's some people who will, there's definitely wars going on on Twitter right now on the videos that myself and other media posted of the event of people just, you know, it doesn't matter if you give me a bazillion articles on why mask wearing is important, why physical distancing is important. They just they don't seem to care. And I think some of it comes down to a lot of people um, who are younger, maybe. And there's a mix of ages. But I think people who are younger saying, well, science says it's not going to necessarily affect me. So, like, it doesn't matter as much. And I think some of it people not really thinking about, like, what about your grandparents or what about those people who are, you know, compromised? Like, it, it might if you get it, it might not kill you but it you could give it to somebody else and it could it could drastically impact them and i think that's what people aren't really thinking about when they're talking about their own freedom well and yeah when you've got political leaders that are validating that that mindset i guess it doesn't help the situation at all uh you know but uh, and and, and this you know there are some statistics here i, I get that i mean you know, the experts are not telling us that probably 80 percent of the people that would test positive are, are not going to be have to be hospitalized but they're still going to get sick uh, but, you know, I, they're going to believe what they're going to believe, I guess. There's not a whole lot more we can do about a situation like that. Did you feel, during the Elmer situation, did you feel as if uh, as if you were being threatened? Were they getting angry at you? I didn't feel overly threatened. There were definitely a couple of moments where people tried to, it started off by, are you here to report the truth? And then, you know, what do, what do you say to that? Because, you know, I'm here I'm there to do my job like everybody else. And then when they, you don't give them the answer they like, or you choose not to, you choose not to acknowledge them really. Then they start to start yelling at you, um, shouting very rude names at you. And then you kind of start to walk away. I wouldn't say I was overly concerned. I also tried to stay on the outside of the group, but there's definitely people who start to, you notice people watching you and you notice people giving you looks and they sort of start to like, once or twice, people I could notice them like circling around me, and just like you keep an eye out. It's a little bit of a risk when you're talking about a crowd that size. People who are both on both ends of the spectrum. Not everybody there wants to attack you, but I think there are people. There are small extremist groups within a, the larger group that are there, and they just want to stir up trouble. So I wouldn't say it was. It wasn't the worst, but I think there were definitely other media who got it um, worse than I did. But there definitely was a bit of a concern at certain points with the group size, the way they look at you and the way they start to yell at you, like, will you do something more? Well, we'll see how it happens in, in St. Thomas. Like I say, uh, just as we did in Aylmer, I mean, we uh, we know that it's coming. Uh, I know the mayor of Aylmer actually declared a state of emergency. I don't. I haven't heard uh, about uh, Mayor Preston going down that road yet, but uh, certainly uh, there's going to be a police presence there, I guess, to try to keep folks uh, in line. And, and uh, hopefully, you know, demonstrations are part of the democracy. We all understand that. And you're not probably going to change too many people's minds in situations like that. Uh, but, you know, these are the, the laws of the land, or the province anyway, the way they're going right now. Uh, stay safe, Sawyer. I, I, it's, it's great to get your perspective on this and see what else is happening. Uh, I, I don't know if there's going to be another one next week. Uh, we'll obviously be watching for that, and uh, I guess we'll have to deal with it if, in fact, it's going to happen. But it's, uh, it's certainly uh, an interesting sidebar story to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the stuff that's gone on and the way it's impacted communities, isn't it? It is, yeah. So uh, thanks again. Uh, stay in touch. Stay well. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks. You too. Take care. Sawyer Bogdan, of course, uh, from 980 CFPL News, who was in Elmer last week for that anti-mask demonstration. And uh, we'll be covering the one that's going to be happening in St. Thomas. Interesting, though, just there seems to be a, a pattern here developing. And that, that's why I'm wondering if, in fact, there is going to be something else. And it goes to the debate and, uh, you know, about public, you know, good against uh, individual rights and, uh 
you know, I, I don't know that you're going to convince anybody on either side to, to try to change their minds on something like that. I mean, you know, there are people out there that are anti-vaxxers, too, that just don't believe in vaccines. And, you know, we'll hear from them once the, the COVID vaccine, I guess, is going to be made available as to whether that's going to happen. And, and you know, that's that's fine if that's what they want to do. Uh, you know, the, the old adage we've always talked about on this program, of course, is, you you know, uh, you're, you're entitled to your thoughts and you're entitled to your opinions, but not, you're not entitled to your own facts. I mean, the facts are the facts, and the, the numbers that we talk about are numbers we get from the medical experts, the people that have gone to school and know about the science and, uh, and are studying what's going on here. So uh, word to the wise, uh, keep the mask on. It's not 24-7. It's just if you're going to be mingling with other people, wear the mask, stop the spread. We've seen the numbers, and we've seen the impact it's had on London. We've seen the impact it's had on Hamilton. And if we don't do something about this very quickly, as we talked about uh, with our guest just a few minutes ago, uh, this bad situation is going to get a whole lot worse. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, controversy continues uh, south of the border. Donald Trump still refuses to concede uh, the election to uh, Joe Biden, who's now called President-elect Joe Biden. And it's causing some problems, as Sagar Magani reports. The president continues making unsupported claims of electoral fraud, predicting he will ultimately win a race he's already lost. He's blocking Biden from getting intelligence briefings and federal funding to facilitate the transfer of power. Democrats and even some Republicans call it dangerous. I just think it's an embarrassment. Biden says it's more damaging to the president's legacy than anything else. We're going to do exactly what we'd be doing if he had conceded insisting the transition's moving along and predicting both the president and top GOP allies will eventually accept reality. Sagar Magani, Washington. So how's this going to end? And and when's it going to end? Because there are deadlines that need to be reached. And, uh, you know, you'd like to think that this is all going to get sorted out by then. Joining us to talk about this is Ryan Hurl, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto with an expertise in American political development and uh, constitutional law. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Well, no problem at all. I, I, is, is it too simplistic to simply say this is a, a debate about trans, or tradition as opposed to law, what they should be doing and what they're expected to do? Yeah, I think that that is a good way to think about it. And in another way, this is just another step in American political polarization. I think if you think back to the 2000 election, everyone can understand why, you know, Al Gore was a little bit hesitant to concede when you're dealing with an election in Florida decided by less than a thousand votes. In an election of that kind, when it's so narrow, there are going to be some questions, there are going to be some concerns. And you, you want to make sure that you have the election outcome correct. The stakes are so high. So Trump has pushed this into new territory. I almost want to say absurd territory. Uh, making contestations based upon outcomes in a variety of states where the margins are so high that even if there are irregularities, and frankly, there often are irregularities in American elections, but even if there are irregularities, it's not likely to change the outcome. So, yes, this is a case in which the uh, nor it's not that the law is being violated, it's that norms are being violated. Um, but I should say that norms are being violated in a very American way through lawsuits. <laughs> and yeah. uh, I think that as long, look, the longer this case carried on, you get additional problems. But the fact of the matter is the transition was very complicated in 2000, and even if there are some disputes in the earliest stages of a transition, I still think the country can maintain itself, and I don't think that um, I don't think that it would necessarily hobble the Biden administration, even if there are, are some delays. Uh, this is based on the assumption, my assessment right now, that uh, you know the lawsuits are going to proceed; they're not going to go anywhere, and the, a more normal transition will occur. It's unfortunate that that has to happen. Uh, it could create some problems for for the Biden administration, but I don't think that uh, right now it is it is. I wouldn't make too much of it at this stage, right? If it's two months from now, and uh, and we'll have to reassess. Uh, but right now, it's going forward in a relatively orderly process, frankly. I know a lot of people are using that comparative of what happened in two thousand, and if I remember correctly, Professor, that was only a difference of what, like five hundred votes. 
between George W. Bush and Al Gore. It, it was centered in Florida, of course, the hanging yeah. chads and all of that sort of stuff. But And then you look at the numbers this time around, Pennsylvania and some of these other states, and even Georgia now as the numbers continue to come in. Uh, Biden's ahead by thousands and thousands of votes. I mean, this is not really that close. When You, you look at percentages, maybe it is, but uh, <laughs> are they expecting to find like 30,000 spoiled ballots that they can discount? Right. And, you know, it's, it, it is, it's not exactly ludicrous, but it is, it's beyond the bar, it's, it's beyond the margin of irregularity. Now, I want, I want to say this. People will make claims to the extent that there's, there's no evidence for any problems with the voting system. And taken on its face value, that's not true. There are always problems in voting. And any audit of a, a presidential vote or any system, you'll always find certain types of problems. And, in 99% of the cases, let's say 90% of the cases, it's not because of intentional malfeasance. It's because of incompetence. Remember, in politics and like a lot of life, incompetence explains a lot. So it's not the case that there are no problems. There are. But it's just that it's not, it's not going to cover the spread, as I might say. So um, obviously, in an ideal world, uh, President Trump would recognize this and would concede as graciously as he can. But we're not in that ideal world. And frankly, if the shoes were on the other foot under 2020 conditions, you can imagine that Democrats would want to uh, investigate every last avenue uh, before finally conceding. Right. That's just uh, acknowledging that the country is extraordinarily polarized and the president has a huge stake. Look, to give an example of this, the Georgia 2018 governor's election, Stacey Abrams lost by 60,000 votes. Uh and she took a very long time to concede on that election. And she raised various claims about voting irregularities. Um, it's unfortunate that, that happens. It's, un- it's unfortunate that people have a difficult time acknowledging reality. But let's acknowledge this reality. It happens on both sides of the aisle now. Uh, it happens in both parties. So um, it's, and it's hard to know how you can get away from that. And we have to just cross our fingers that this time the system doesn't break, that eventually uh, Trump will acknowledge reality. And I get the sense that, uh, that they're cognizant of that. I mean, even the uh, pronouncement by Attorney General Barr yesterday uh, asking prosecuting attorneys to investigate uh, in their states. Uh, but it was, I can't remember a paraphrasing, but it was if, I, if there's egregious uh, malfeasance, so the, okay, investigate that. But, you know, not if it's going to be 100 votes here, 100 votes there. That's that's not worth the court's trouble in situations like that. So I, you know, Barr's not going at this with a microscope, and I don't think he's asking anybody else to. And I, there's, there's a lot of concern and conjecture right now, I guess, Professor, is that did Barr do that just to pacify Trump? Yeah, I think that, that that's a good way of thinking about it. I mean, yeah, as, as you said, the right way to, to think about this is to look at the relatively carefully measured statement by Attorney General Barr. Um, you would hope he could go one step further and act as a friend of the president and perhaps sit him down and essentially read him the riot act and explain, try to explain the circumstance. What I'm worried about is that there is no one... There's no one explaining the other side of the equation to the president, and perhaps he's only getting information about some, some cases, speculative theories about uh, about voter fraud and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think that uh, I think that Barr's statement probably didn't go go far enough, and perhaps at some point you will say what I anticipate is that unless the almost unimaginable happens and there actually is evidence of of voter fraud almost completely unlikely to happen. Uh, at some point, you were going to see other Republicans step up and say, we lost this fair and square. Uh, it's time to move on. It's time to focus on the, uh, the, the Georgia Senate elections, which will be happening in January, which will con- determine control of the Senate. I think at some point, you will see the Republican Party make a pivot. And I hope that's not just wishful thinking on my part. Let me ask you about that, because that's another theory that, that's being floated out there, and I've seen it on social media in a couple of different places, too, that, that the reason why, not just Trump, but I mean, Trump is doing it for Trump, but I mean, McConnell and, and Lindsey Graham, et cetera, are, are seemingly keeping the, you know, the, the wind in the sails of this, you know, this, this is, you know, a hoax, this is, this isn't really happened, is because of those two senatorial races. In other words, they want to keep the, the Trump base and the Republican base hot and bothered about this so they'll turn out in January. Yeah, it's a it's difficult to know how that strategy is going to play out. In my view, I think that Republicans in Georgia would be motivated to vote regardless of what happens. Certainly, there'll be no lack of money in those Senate races. Mm-hmm. If you own a radio station in Georgia right now, 
it's going to be it's going to be a great Christmas season because <laughs> there is going to be so much money flowing into Georgia. Uh, it's going to be you know everyone's going to have Cadillacs. Um, I mean, <laughs> if you're in the radio business, <laughs> but I don't think. Uh, but I, that would have been happening anyway. So I. <sighs> And I hate to have to speculate about Trump's psychology, and I'm looking forward to no longer having to speculate about Trump's psychology. But I think at part of it, it's it's perhaps even worse than that. It's not a deliberate strategy. I think at this stage, he really does think that the outcome might be different, and the numbers say something different. What about the the damage that's being done? And you hear different stories and different perspectives on this, I guess, depending on who you want to talk to and who you want to listen to. Uh, President like Biden was was, I, I think, pretty cool about the whole thing yesterday, saying, "Look, you know, we don't need the money uh, from from the agency. We can still mm-hmm. do our transition stuff. Uh, they're they're flush with cash anyway. We knew that already." Uh, but there is some concern that's been raised about, for instance, appointments that he may want to make uh, to the Biden team, uh, and and there have to be security checks and everything else that are done on this. And of course, the daily uh, security briefings that uh, that invariably the the president elect would get, uh, and he's not obviously going to be you know, privy to any of that information. Is is that problematic? I think it's potentially problematic. I'm glad this isn't happening, say, in the middle of World War II or the middle of the Cold War. I think that the United States is lucky that it's a, a relatively peaceful time, so that on the, the foreign policy front, I don't think this period of a somewhat uncertainty, the, the difficulties of the transition, is necessarily going to lead to a disaster. But as I said, time is of the essence. At this stage, I don't think any permanent damage is being done. The longer the uncertainty continues, uh, you could have you, you could encounter some problems. But I also think it, 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 it the other issue here is that there was it's relatively in the relatively recent past that we had a Democratic administration. Biden obviously has a lot of uh, experience himself, and he has a deep bench to choose from. So I think that that experience amongst the the key Democratic leaders that he's going to want as part of his team is going to is going to help with the transition, probably overcoming any problems associated with the delay. Well, to use the old colloquialism, this is not his first rodeo. I mean, eight, you're right, eight yeah. years as a VP, uh, many, many years in the Senate on the Foreign Relations Committee. I mean, he probably knows more international leaders than probably, well, a handful of people maybe on Capitol Hill. So, I mean, it's this, you know, he's not going to get overwhelmed by anything, I would think, when uh, January 21st. I hope not. I mean, yeah. this is not 1980s or 1990s Joe Biden, uh, but I, I think that yes, he definitely experience is, is experience is not going to be a problem for him. I mean, I think also thinking about this in terms of the political effects of all of this, uh, this could be, in term in the sense that it's, it's if it's part of a political strategy, it is also meant to sort of underline perhaps the limits of Joe Biden's mandate. And that's one way of thinking about it. And keep in mind, it's not just Republicans who are the audience here for these for these challenges. Uh, even if uh, Democrats pull out well, something like a miracle and win control of the Senate, there will be many wavering senators, or not many, at least some wavering senators, such as Joe Manchin in West Virginia, who, from the Republicans' perspective, it's probably good to remind them of just how narrow this electoral victory was. Under what you might think is very auspicious conditions for the Democrats, you know, essentially the failure of the Trump administration during, in terms of their response to the COVID crisis. So, yes, there's a there's a straightforward political dimension to this, and frankly, it's not totally different from the way in which immediately after the 2016 presidential election, yes, the Democrats conceded, but right away they're thinking about 2020. They're thinking about the midterm elections. Right away they're forming a resistance. Right away they are challenging the president, uh, and going as far as challenging the legitimacy of the election. So as I said, Trump has taken this to a new level, but this is, this is a problem that's not going, he didn't create the problem, and it's not a problem that's going to go away anytime soon. Well, and that's a line of thinking that uh, a lot of folks have been talking about in the last little while. I mean, you look at Donald Trump's America over four years, and, and you know, and it's easy, to, I guess, to try to lay all the blame on him and say, look at what he's caused. But uh, I, I think your point's well taken. A lot of the things that are going on here, this, the, the racism and the and the, the discontent, mm-hmm. uh, it, that, that was going on long before. He, he may have been a, a focal point and, and a lightning rod for it, but uh, it's not going away if he goes away. Right. And it will be interesting to see how Biden responds to that challenge after the election is over. And I think he's in, in some ways, a very dangerous circumstance. And particularly if he finds that he's dealing with divided government and dealing with the Senate, 
he'll be faced with the choice of whether to have a presidentialist government in which he's trying to push through major policy changes on the basis of executive power alone, as opposed to trying to find some common ground uh, with Republicans in the Senate, and in many cases with uh, more moderate or conservative-leaning Democrats in the House. So what I'm hoping is that Biden will take this opportunity to return to a normal form of government. That is to say, if you want major policy changes, you try to get those changes enacted in law. If he tries to have an executive-centered form of government, I think that there could be this could essentially push <laughs> push American politics to the next stage, um, in which uh, people start really challenging the legitimacy of national power. So Biden's and Biden's going to be face some difficult choices here because there are many people in his party who are going to suggest that well, you have the presidency now, um, use that power to its fullest extent, and if that means trying to find a way around a Republican Senate, then you take those opportunities. I'm hoping Biden, as a long-term senator himself, is not going to, uh, is not going to take that route. Um, I think that hopefully if he pursues uh, an attempt to really normalize American politics as much as possible, uh, he could have a truly great presidency. But it's, it's hard to, again, that might be wishful thinking on my part. Uh, yeah, exactly. And you're absolutely right. I know he's talked about already executive orders uh, to do with the the Muslim ban and wants to reverse that, and 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 one or two other things too. But uh, you've you've still got to play the game. And you know, McConnell's mm-hmm. an expert. Hey, these guys worked in the Senate together too. So you'd like to think that there's going to be some consensus or at least some bridge building from time to time. But there hasn't been too much reaching across the aisle lately, has there? Not yet. I mean, it, it is. It's definitely too early to say. And, you know, just to add a caveat to what I said, there are elements of executive power where you can take unilateral decisions, and it's totally legitimate. And executive order in and of itself is not a problem. So in the thing you mentioned in terms of the Muslim ban, if, if Biden wants to change that policy, that's a, that's a power that's been granted to him through statute by Congress. What I'm talking about is something like if Democrats find that it's difficult to enact their Green New Deal and, in Congress, and instead try to pursue it through the administrative route. That could be very damaging because the, the economic implications of a, a major environmental policy are not going to be felt equally in all regions of the country. And if there's a sense that this is being imposed outside of the normal political process, I mean, that's going to be a real problem. This is something people haven't talked about enough. You know, the way in which President Obama wielded executive power not only in environmental policy, but I think also in immigration policy, that motive mobilized the Republican base, and particularly the Trumpist base, right? Mm-hmm. The notion that presidential power was now sort of essentially breaking the bounds of the Constitution, and that policies were being enacted, new directions in politics were being created at the behest of the presidency alone. I don't think American government and American society can will really benefit from that approach to presidential power. And again, it's something that people haven't talked about enough. I was hoping there'd be more discussion during the Trump administration that, you know, maybe this isn't just a problem with Trump, maybe it's a problem with the imperial presidency. Though, of course, it's always easier to criticize the imperial presidency when the other when the other party controls the president. Exactly. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for now. We're just about out of time. Uh, great to get your perspective on this, Professor. Thanks so much for this today. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. Professor Ryan Hurl, of course, from uh, University of Toronto with an expertise in American politics. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.